You are currently listening to a recording of me being chased by a dog. This recording is taken from my spoken word album uh, I recorded a couple of years ago. It's roughly an hour of poetry selected from across my three collections. Rather than record these poems in a fancy recording studio, uh, I decided that I would record them out in the wild. So technically they're kind of classed as field recordings. Every single one is recorded in a different location. Uh, there's one in a nightclub toilet. There's a, there's one in a university courtyard. One's in a forest. Uh, one's in the waiting room of a hospital. The bit where I ran away from a dog, that's not a planned part of the album, but like I already have my dictaphone in my hand and I'm an opportunist. Dear God. It was fun to try and record uh, a poem immediately after being chased by a dog. I did once get a review that described my poetry delivery style as, and, uh, and, and I quote, uh, a man who has run upstairs to tell you something and then forgotten what he was going to say. So apparently this is not particularly different to how I, I normally sound anyway. Dear God, I have no power at all. And uh, I want to shout something like the pros that have open heart surgery. I'm not worried too much about what that means. In fact, I consider it a privilege to pile on enthusiasm where it's not wanted. If you've ever dressed yourself when drunk, you'll know what I'm talking about here. This whole thing was, was basically just an experiment. Uh, poetry recordings can often feel quite sterile. I wanted you to try and get a feel for the type of places where these poems would have been written in the first place. Remember when Wright said Fred sang, I'm too sexy for this song thus causing the song to immediately vanish out from underneath them. Label that under greatest achievements of postmodernism. I recorded the album whilst recovering from an asthma attack in 2013. Now at the time I wasn't really supposed to be doing any work, I was under orders to take it easy, but I very quickly started to go crazy, cooped up in my house, so I decided that I would make this album. And listening back to it now, the album, it kind of charts my progress back to health. Starting off with this, this wheezing, half-dead degenerate, and then eventually at the end, kind of getting back to the, the proud owl-like presence that uh, you can hear talking to you here today. House DJs always keep their hair short so their heads can be easily cut from press shots and dropped onto fluorescent posters. Now I am I'm, I'm, I'm very very happy with uh, this album. It's weird and it's it's strange but it's a good record of, of my poetry and uh, I'm pretty sure that making this album is what gave me the confidence to start creating the uh, this podcast. 
It made me realize all of the stuff that you can kind of do in radio that you can't do live or on the page. So uh, I've decided to use this album as a way to solicit donations to the podcast. It's online now. Uh, It's called Everything We Do Is A Warning Sign and you can buy it online through the Bandcamp website. It, It costs only a minimum of £2 to download it but if you if you wanted to give a bigger donation to the podcast then you, you can and it kills me uh, to have to ask for donations but this is basically the model that I have to use for now um, I've, I've got some really really big pieces of work that I'm making exclusively for the podcast which are going to be coming up over the next couple of months uh, for example uh, I'm working on a tour guide for the London DLR line so as you sit on the train, you can hit go on the podcast and listen to my own tour uh, going from Bank all the way to Kaisak. Uh, I've also got a multi-part journalism piece about the recent plagiarism scandals in poetry. And I can't even talk about that right now because it's going to tip my hand. But it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting story and it's still ongoing, but that's going to be ready really soon. I've got uh, a whole bunch of uh, more true stories that I need to write up. I've got a special on rave music that I'm putting together. There's just so much stuff that I, I want to make, uh, but it's a lot of man hours. So, so let me just say this: any donations are welcome. Uh, Two pounds is 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 amazing and and and, and really appreciated. However, uh, if you wanted to donate, like like the the the, the, the if for, for example, let's say you donated. 50 pounds okay that means yeah spending 50 pounds ostensibly on my spoken word album but what you're doing there with that 50 pounds is effectively bankrolling an entire episode of the podcast and that is an amazing altruistic act and you know you know i would really think carefully before spending that money but if you did then you basically become the episode sponsor and I will drop you an email to say thanks and to sort out some kind of official credit uh, to be read out on air. Well, that's that's totally optional, but that's my way of thanking those people who keep the wheels turning. So uh, if you want to buy the album, uh, all you have to do is just go to my Tumblr, that's imaginaryadvice.tumblr.com and click uh, on the... uh, the page for support uh buy the album and you support the show man i could have killed me to do that but that is going to keep this thing going and i love doing this i really do okay In the beginning, there was Keith's Bar. Keith created the mood lighting. He created the beer cellar. He created the lounge and the games room. He separated the soft drinks from the hard ones and the hard ones from the soft. He created a reasonably priced lunchtime menu and he saw that it was good and Keith said let no one smile unless someone else has smiled first 
and upon his command it was so. Keith created two barmen in his own image. The lesser one, Alistair, to rule the day, and the larger one, Jim, to rule the night. And the customers only ever paid cash, and the TV only ever showed horse racing, and no one touched the dogs. And then Keith said, Let there be wanted criminals racking up extortionate bar tabs. And it was so. And the criminals brought forth grasses, and the grasses yielded crime after its kind, whose crime is in itself upon the face of the premises. And for eight long years, so it was, as dust gathered slowly on the surfaces of the drunken. Until the year of our Lord, 1982, when Keith's wife left him and moved back to her mother's in Penrith. Enraged, the almighty creator found himself in sudden need of a replacement chef, one prepared to work six nights a week, cash in hand, for less than three pounds an hour, if at all possible. Preferably someone young and stupid that he could use as his own personal punching bag. So it was that I came into this world. A reedy, ill-looking physics student, desperate for a, a job. Any job. Soon after my arrival came the second transgression. Jim, the larger of the barmen, decided it was time to leave the pub behind him forever, along with about £200 from the office safe. Keith looked sadly upon his bar and saw the vast expanse that Jim had left behind. Once again, he would have to return to the crumpled pile of resumes filed under the coffee machine. He would need a new enforcer, someone trustworthy, someone with a good sense of humour, and yet someone who could kill you with one look if you stepped out of line. And then Keith said, Let there be Maggie. And there was Maggie. This is the story we tell people of how our world began. A story Maggie and I must have told around 50 dining tables. A story of two teenagers working in a dive bar in Slateford who fell in love and escaped together into a more civilised, more hygienic society. When people ask us whether it was love at first sight, we say yes, because this is a simple answer. And simple answers are usually correct. However, if you were to conduct even a cursory examination of our lives, you would find a lot of evidence that does not fit this account of instantaneous and unequivocal love. Instead, you would find two people who were desperately unhappy with the prospects offered by a grimy bar on the outskirts of Edinburgh and had resolved to pool their resources. Maggie and I were at the mercy of more pressing conditions than simply love. Conditions that included, amongst others, mutual low self-esteem, a drug dealer support network and an unreliable 
late-night bus service. You see, this level of truth is unfit for the dining table. In fact, I think it should never be spoken aloud, ever, whether in company or otherwise. But it is the truth, all the same. You could say that Maggie and I forced the facts to fit. We tinkered with the measurements until the equation balanced. We botched love and we stuck to our story. Over time, we moved out of Slateford and into the Braid Hills. I finished my studies and took a job teaching astronomy at the university. Maggie went briefly into PR until the birth of our child, a girl named Violet. Maggie later returned to work at a local cancer charity. Violet started talking, I took up gardening, we rearranged the furniture in the lounge every 12 months, and soon the walls of our home became the furthest limits of our universe. There was no need to look beyond the bookcases, the cistern, the garden shed. And I would find myself sleeping next to my beautiful wife on Christmas Eve in our warm two-bedroom Victorian maisonette with a Christmas tree bursting with electronics, a turkey waiting in our oven, and a young girl asleep in the room next door, dreaming of what I can only suspect to be ponies. And despite these things, I would find myself asking questions that I could not answer. Deep down, I could not shake the feeling that we had fiddled with the equations. I did not know what love was. I did not know how I had got here. Good girl, come on. No, 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 come back, come back. Can sit there. Violet is five now. She is a chatterbox without portfolio. Although, in amongst the nonsense, she does retain the uncanny ability to nail my subconscious at the worst possible moment. One Christmas, uh, whilst waiting for our festive meal, Violet threw a keyring at the back of my head and then demanded to know why it was that the three of us lived together. Without a second's hesitation, I found myself jumping immediately into the story of Keith's bar, the story of how Maggie and I met whilst working in the same dirty pub in Slateford and immediately fell in love. Because every child needs their own creation myth. I lied to my daughter because the truth is messy. Its lack of aesthetic offends me on some deep subconscious level. The truth itself, it requires so many blind assumptions and predicates that it doesn't really sound any more credible than the fairy tale that I usually dish out. I see no reason to change the party line. Not yet. How to break down this data. How to reach an answer that is elegant and correct. A theory that will unify my questions. How did I end up loving Maggie? How did Maggie end up loving me? What force holds us together? How did our universe come to be? It's galling that the questions that have kept me awake at night for so long should sound so much 
like a Rod Stewart song. For years, whenever I thought about those questions, I would begin to feel ill almost immediately. It was as if those thoughts had to be hidden from me in order to preserve my sanity. But now, things are different. The last 12 months have been scored with breakthroughs. Slowly, piece by piece, I have begun to make sense of the data. At every stage in my reasoning, I have tried to reach rational conclusions built on observable evidence. And look, I know how this sounds. It sounds cold, detached. But the truth is, I have never felt more passionate. Now, this is not the passion of a teenage romantic. No, no, those days are gone. No, this passion is, is, is the passion of the scientist. A passion that drives me not simply to believe, but to understand. I do not want to simply accept my marriage. I want to prove it. I want to prove that my marriage exists. Breakthrough number one. We are not at the center of the universe. My topic is the planets. We, of course, live on one. It's called the Earth. And it is a tiny little planet made of rock and metal with a tiny thin atmosphere around it, clouds, water. For most of human history, people thought that the Earth was at the center, not just of the solar system, but of the universe, and that not only all the planets went around the Earth once every day, the Earth was not imagined to rotate, but also the Sun went around the Earth. And that was a kind of astronomical egotism in which uh, we thought we were splendid and uh, all the other objects in the universe somehow secondary to the Earth and its inhabitants. Well, what we have found is just the opposite, that we are a very humdrum and ordinary locale in the universe. When I married Maggie, I thought that from then on, my life would revolve around making her happy. And then, once uh, Violet was born, I thought that my life would revolve around keeping her happy, too. Maggie and Violet would be the binary suns around which my world would turn. Now, if that version of the universe is correct, then my family should be able to exact a huge influence over me. My day and my night, my sun and my moon, my very concept of time would be set to their movements. And yet, I must report that their direct influence, for better or for worse, is barely noticeable. Despite being my protege, I am generally unmoved by Violet's force around the home. Although she oscillates wildly between conflicting emotional states, she rarely influences my mood directly. At best, I find her problems to be mildly amusing. She is driven by insane levels of greed that are impossible to sympathise with. It's like living with a tiny, loveless steel tycoon. 
as one would expect. Maggie's influence upon me is greater. The fact that she currently hates her job does aggrieve me, obviously. It's not the same as me hating my own job. Similarly, Maggie's insomnia is distressing for me as well, I suppose, but I do not care as much as I expect I should. However, on the surface, I will try to behave as if the problems of my family are tearing me apart. I will fake their influence. I will cry with them and smile with them. I will rise and fall. And I do all this because I want them to feel that we are all together in some sort of geosynchronous package. I will make her spaghetti and I will laugh at her jokes. But at the same time, I feel that I only do it for my own benefit out of a selfish need to feel normal. Which brings me to the crux of my preliminary thesis. The influence, positive or negative, between the members of my family is negligible in the face of the unrelenting pull of my own guilt. At the centre of my solar system is not my daughter nor my wife, but a reimagining of myself as a better person as husband, lover, father, protector. This is the screaming, burning center of my solar system, me. My own colossal superego, a huge fiery ball of my collective guilt and anxiety. As a force of influence, it dwarfs all others. And occasionally, the influence can be broken. This is caused by objects passing in between me and my blazing superego, say a bucket of chicken or the breasts of one of my students. During these moments, I am cast into shadow, where I momentarily can forget, say, my paternal anxieties. But this eclipse is only cosmetic. My true orbit is never altered. Which forces the question... Where are my wife and my daughter, if not in orbit around me, nor I around them? Well, I believe the answer is that this metaphor is not localised to our solar system, but expands to neighbouring galaxies, and that Maggie and Violet are in fact distant stars, each of their minds, just the same as mine, tiny rocks of consciousness in orbit around their own dreams and desires, slaves to their own burgeoning consciences. I designed this metaphor as an aid to meditation. It was supposed to make me understand the sheer vastness of my marriage, as if my family were mere grains of dust floating through a cathedral. It was supposed to help me understand how my world and the world of my wife can be so, so far away from each other, despite the fact that down on the surface of my planet, when my fearsome son is asleep, she can look close enough to touch. As a theory, I liked it. It made me happy all through spring. I stopped my course of antidepressants, I even started running. I was alone, but not lonely, imagining our house as the lens of a giant telescope, 
with Maggie and I twinkling at each other across the great vacuum of our dining table. Soon, Violet started school, I began a new term at the university, and soon became too preoccupied to dwell on such theories. My family and I were too busy bringing in shopping and hanging out laundry and booking holidays and holding down our careers and reprising things from cookbooks and turning on televisions to discover episodes of CSI that miraculously we had never seen before. In moments like those, it was easy to convince ourselves that the universe was stable. But by the summer, a new theory was coming to light. Breakthrough number two. The universe is still growing. Red shifts of the distant galaxies seemed to imply to Hummison's contemporaries that we were at the center of an expanding universe, that our place in space was somehow privileged. But if the universe is expanding, whether or not it's curved into a fourth dimension, Observers on every galaxy will see precisely the same thing. All the galaxies rushing away from them as if they had made some dreadful intergalactic social blunder. Yes, the universe is not static, nor has it ever been. The same for my marriage as it was in the heavens. Everything was slowly drifting further apart. The evidence was so minute that it could only be observed over extremely long periods of time, but the evidence was there, all the same. My first observations regarded Maggie's toilet habits. Maggie increasingly had uh, what I came to call phantom urinations, going to the toilet when she didn't need to go. There was a flush, but the sound was not precipitated by any evidence of passing water. When I first noticed this phenomenon, I suggested that Maggie go see a urologist. Maggie made no attempt to do so. I do not make these types of suggestions anymore. Another observation. Whenever we took a car journey together, Maggie would fasten Violet into her purple Biffo Bear car seat. Then she would close Violet's door, walk around the back of the car, open the front passenger door and get in. Over the last eight months, the length of time from Maggie closing Violet's door to Maggie opening her own door rose steadily from four to 15 seconds. On our holiday to Germany last August, this journey around the car reached a new high of 27 seconds. In the rearview mirror, I could see one of Maggie's pale hands pressed against the back of the car. Beneath the sound of the autobahn, I could hear her counting to herself, a technique she often used to calm herself down. Were it not for her counting, I doubt I would have been able to measure how long that I sat waiting in the car for her. My head was so heavy with thoughts that it's unlikely I would have been able to calculate that huge expanse of time without her help. I began to believe that these small disappearances of Maggie were in fact indicative of a much larger curvature propelling her away from the rest of her family. To put it scientifically, therefore I hope, least painfully, 
My wife was suffering from an imbalance in time and space, an imbalance that was pulling her further and further away from me. Even with the vast distance that already existed between us, the universe was continuing to expand. Now these were not in themselves strong enough phenomena to deduce at what date Maggie would divorce me, although if the time that Maggie was taking to traverse our car continued to increase at the same rate, then it would be possible to plot the gaps as follows. January 2015, four seconds. August 2015, 27 seconds. August 2017, 15 and a half hours. August 2018, 29.7 days, July 2020, 47.6 years. Maggie's position in bed had also begun to shift, her body slowly moving across the surface of the mattress. By September, she had traveled so far that her knees were outside the duvet. They were easily detectable due to their paleness. They seemed to light up the entire room. Every night, I was able to directly experience the growing distance between us. I could feel it in the springs beneath my body. Time-lapse photography would show Maggie's head slowly moving away from me, moving gradually across our dark pillows, the trail of her red hair billowing behind her like the fire of a comet, while I stared blearily into its wake. My mood reached its lowest point on the 26th of October 2015. I found myself unable to sleep and wandered back into the front room to examine my bookcase. I sat at my desk and began to write some notes for the following day's lecture. Eventually I found myself unable to type and decided to spend the rest of the night cleaning out the cupboards in the kitchen. At 10 o'clock the next day, I arrived at the lecture theatre just in time to see the last few of my second year students filing out of the hall. There was a sarcastic cheer as I entered the building. A couple of students held up their arms, pointing at their wristwatches in a pantomime fashion. At that moment, standing in the doorway of Lecture Theatre 3, I had the final breakthrough of my miracle year. You see, it was the first day of winter, and I had forgotten to wind back my clock. Breakthrough number three. At some point in time, all things were one. Do we live in a universe which expands forever? Or in one where there is a nested set of infinite cycles? There's a way to find out the answer to that question, not by mysticism, but through science. If we agree that my family is drifting further apart, then we must also agree 
but they are being propelled from a point of origin. To look upon my marriage now is to look upon the last stragglers of a classroom that has decided to dismiss itself. There's only so much that we can learn from this data, but if we travel back along the timeline to the start of the lecture, we can actually determine how many pupils attended and how many were absent. Therefore, let us imagine my marriage in reverse. Maggie floating back towards the center of the bed, awkward silences retreating back into our conversations, our bodies becoming inseparable as the years drop away. If we run the clock backwards for long enough, then hypothetically we would arrive at a saturation point, a period when our family was as close together as they could ever possibly be, an origin point for our universe which we can examine for traces of our love. That evening, I paid a visit to my only remaining friend from Keith's bar, Dan. Originally a friend of Maggie's, but over those early years, we got about as close as anyone could. I remembered Dan's old Super 8 camera. It had been a constant fixture of our Slateford days. Dan was always filming us. I remembered one night a group of us finished a shift, got tanked up, and then went to a kid's playground down the road and made little films of us going down the slide together, filming our expressions as we held onto the roundabout, the world whirling around us. I'd never seen the footage that we recorded that night, but now it was all I could think about. I'd dodged Dan's suggestion of a nostalgia evening on several occasions, but now Dan's old film canisters had a new significance. They were the oldest archive of my relationship with Maggie. From these records, I could look unhindered into the past and witness the first blossoming of love between us. As Dan was setting up the projector, he asked me if Keith's death had anything to do with my visit. I told him I had no idea. Apparently, Keith had burned the bar to the ground five years earlier, claimed the insurance, and then run away to France. There'd been no further news until the Evening Post had reported a heart attack last week. Almost immediately, as if summoned, Keith appeared in the room flickering silently across Dan's dining room wall. He looked a lot younger than I remembered. Next to Keith, a young man with spiky black hair, my own distant echo, made from light that had taken 25 years to arrive. There was a sound like ears popping and the image changed. Maggie now appeared before us, wiping down the bar her red hair tied in a knot on top of her head. She was wearing the same blue checkered shirt that she always wore to work, the one with the green ink stain by the pocket. Maggie looked up sharply and gave the camera the finger. As always, she looked beautiful. 
Maggie's hands suddenly closed around the camera, pulling it away from Dan. The room spun round, and for a second the entire wall of Dan's dining room was filled with the image of Maggie's ear, giant, like Aladdin's cave, materialising before us. And then... Nothing. The end. We watched several more. Some films featured the bar, some Dan's old university flat. Our teenage years catalogued away in tiny fragments of film. A wave here, a smile there, a hand coming up to block the lens. And yet, Maggie and I almost never appeared in the same frame. No holding hands, not even a push or a shove. It was as if we'd been spliced in from different stories altogether. I arrived home to find Maggie sitting in the garden. The sun was over the horizon by that point. Maggie was little more than a shape amongst the trees. I remember feeling drunk and the sound of crickets. My exact words were far from elegant. I asked her if she still loved me. She said yes. We both knew the answer was insufficient. I asked her if there had ever been anyone that she had loved more than me. Before or after, had there ever been anyone that she had cared about more? There was a long pause, and then Maggie kissed my cheek. Her lips were cold, and I wondered how long she'd been sitting in the garden. Maybe my first boyfriend, she said, but things were different then. I didn't know what I was doing. What about you, she said. Was there anyone that you ever loved more? I remembered Sharon Abbott, my first girlfriend. I remembered watching her, getting into her father's car, catching her eyes in the rearview mirror. For one second, it felt like there was nothing in the world but that image. And there, in the darkness, I began to modify my theory. You see, it was conceivable that by the time Maggie and I discovered one another, both of us were already adrift. Both of us had separately found love with someone else and lost it. That means at the point in time that my wife and I were joined spiritually may have occurred before we even met each other. And although we may not have experienced true love at exactly the same point in time, individually, we each had our own moment, an origin point to our love. In that moment, there was no separation between me and Maggie or anyone else in the universe. In that moment, mass and energy were one. From that spark, all of life began. And from that point, we have all drifted out further and further, creating new constellations, wishing things upon one another. But all of that is still propelled from 
that one initial moment, that first feeling. And for one second, looking at Maggie, I felt its force again. There is an old Gnostic idea that claims that our world was not perfectly created, that the God who created our world was an idiot who bungled the job, so that our world is a half-finished creation full of flaws, opening, gaps. It is not fully real, and therefore we cannot ever hope to fully comprehend it. Perhaps this is why theories can only last so long. Eventually, another theory always comes along, the community adopts it, the old idea gets reduced to a footnote, and then eventually it disappears altogether. And yet, the inventors of these theories almost never give up when the time comes to change. They cling to their outdated theorems, well past the paradigm shift, well past the point when their tenacity has made them look like idiots. They take their theories with them to the grave. And on that day, in the garden, standing there with Maggie, I think I might have made a similar pact. And as Maggie stood there, waiting for my answer, I felt my eyes adjusted the light. If the universe truly oscillates, if the modern scientific version of the old Hindu cosmology is valid, then still stranger questions arise. Some scientists think that when redshift is followed by blueshift, causality will be inverted and effects will precede causes. First, the ripples spread out from a point on the water's surface. Then, I throw the stone into the pond. Some scientists wonder, in an oscillating universe, about what happens at the cusps, at the transition from contraction to expansion. Some think that the laws of nature are then randomly reshuffled that the kinds of physics and chemistry we have in this universe represent only one of an infinite range of possible natural laws. It is easy to see that only a very restricted range of laws of nature are consistent with galaxies and stars, planets, life, and intelligence. If the laws of nature are randomly reshuffled at the cusps, then it is only the most extraordinary coincidence that the cosmic slot machine has this time come up with a universe consistent with us. <laughs>